Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to explore a movie that asks the questions, does the pursuit of pleasure lead to happiness, and can any man or woman truly be an island, and if so, could I at least be Ibiza? Uh, We're going to be talking about the movie About a Boy, starring Hugh Grant and Nicholas Holt. Uh, I'm Mario Sakura here with the two TJs today, guys. How you doing? Doing well. Doing pretty well. Happy to be here. Right. Looking forward to talking about this movie. Yeah. I love this movie. I'm not embarrassed to say it. Okay. I'm not embarrassed to say that I love a Hugh Grant movie. There's actually a couple that I really like. And it borders on a... No, I'm not going to call it a chick flick. It's not a chick flick. This, for me, is a movie that is the kind of movie they don't make much anymore. It is a popular comedy romance, smart that's entertaining as well. I'm, I really enjoy this movie. I've seen it a bunch of times, and I, too, am looking forward to talking about it. Guys, comments on About a Boy before we start. I enjoyed it. This was the first time I've ever seen it. Ah. Like you, I, I'm a sucker for romantic comedies. I'm a bit of a hopeless romantic at heart. Notting Hill is one of my favorite comedy films. I love Notting Hill. I don't think Julia Roberts has ever been more appealing than in Notting Hill, but go ahead. Sorry. I agree. So, yeah, so I enjoyed this one as well. I had seen this back in the day. I had read the novel by Nick Hornby, loved it, saw the movie, totally enjoyed it, largely forgot about it until watching it for this, and it hit me in the heart. Absolutely loved it. And I just want to throw this in, that there is no reason that any movie that's been deemed a chick flick can't be intelligent, (laughs) heartfelt, well-acted, well-written, and well-directed. This is true. And it shows my bias, uh, my bias for, um, you know, hairy chested explosion movies and uh, that sort of thing. So, but yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And that's why, uh, you know, I am making the point here that uh, I, I love this movie. So uh, regarding Notting Hill, which TJ and Gracia brought up, uh, you know, whenever it's on cable, I'll turn it on. Right. And my wife will walk into the room and say, are you watching this movie again? You know, I mean, just which is a complete role reversal, right? Because, you know, she's the chick in our house and, uh, you know, she's the one supposed to be watching Notting Hill. But I just love that movie and I love this one, too. So let's talk about Let's get right into it. So for those of you who have not seen About a Boy, it was uh, made in 2002. It's uh, a romantic comedy drama film directed by the Whites brothers, Paul and Chris, uh, who co-wrote the screenplay with Peter Hedges. It's an adaption, like TJ said, of the um, Nick Hornby novel. One of my other favorite novel to uh, movie films uh, was by Nick Hornby, uh, uh, High Fidelity with John Cusack, I think is an excellent, excellent movie. And uh, it the film stars Hugh Grant, in kind of a new direction for Hugh Grant at this point in his career, right? He'd been kind of the floppy-haired, you know, naifish sort of character up until right before this. He played kind of a jerk in uh, Bridget Jones's Diary, which I think was before this. Uh, but this was his first, you know, for me, his movie that showed he could act, quite frankly, as far as I was concerned. Um, and uh, let's see, Nicholas Holt, 
was 12 years old at the time, plays 11-year-old Marcus. He grew up to be Beast in the X-Men movies and also Nux in uh, one of my all-time favorite movies, uh, which I'm going to go ahead and call a chick flick as well. Uh, the uh, the Road Warrior movie. What was, she, what was the, drawing a blank on now? The, uh, Mad the, the latest Fury Road. Road. Mad, thank you. Mad Max Fury Road, right? A uh, super, super movie. And uh, uh, Nicholas Holt is great in it. Also, the wonderful, wonderful Tony Collette, uh, who plays Marcus's mother in this. And a nice small role with Rachel Weisz, uh, one of my favorites as well. Um, the, the movie was, uh, again, released 2002 uh, by Universal Pictures, nominated for an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. And um, let's see, Grant and Colette nominated for Golden Globe and BAFTA Awards, respectively. Let's see, the movie was made for about $30 million and earned $130 million worldwide. So it was a successful movie, both critically and uh, financially. Although, again, not a movie that many people talk about. Uh, why is that, guys? Tell me why people don't talk enough about this movie that I like so much. Not enough explosions, probably. <laughs> there you go. Okay. It's not based on an existing property that was widely known. You know, it was based on a literary novel, although not a, you know, a Booker Prize winner or anything like that. But a genuinely good novel. But yeah, no superheroes, no car chases. Also, it's not a romance. It's not a movie that predicates on right. is the, are the man and the woman going to get together in spite of the fact that when they meet, they're very different and they hate each other. And then they argue, they butt heads, but of course we all know where this is going. Suddenly their fighting turns into necking and now they're in love. It doesn't go there. It right. almost teases the possibility. In some ways it turns that trope upside down, but it comes to a very different conclusion. Yeah, th this it's a relationship movie for sure. Right. But it's a relationship between a man and a boy, which is <laughs> kind of hard to pull off. Right. It's got to be got to be done well there. Um, you know, um, there's it, it's a movie that could have been sappy, very easily could have been sappy. And um, but it walks that line of being heartfelt, but not sappy, funny, but not mocking. Right. Uh, it, it's, it's a smart, well done movie. And again, I don't think we see enough of these anymore. So let me do a summary here. And I'm stealing a lot from Roger Ebert in this summary. So if you read his review of the movie, which was quite positive, he gave it three and a half stars, um, you'll, you'll read there a lot of what I'm going to repeat uh, along with some of my own additions. Okay, so uh, Hugh Grant plays Will, a 38-year-old bachelor who has never had a job or a relationship that lasted longer than two months. But he's content with his lifestyle. At one point, he says, I was the star of The Will Show. And uh, it is not an ensemble drama. He also tries to make the case that contrary to what John Dunn had to say, he is an island and uh, a person can be an island and he has set out to prove that. Um, his purpose in life seems to be to date pretty girls in whatever way he can uh, and then kind of love them and grow bored with them and move on. When they ask him what he does, he smiles that Hugh Grant sort of way and confesses that, well, he doesn't do anything. And when they ask him, oh, you're taking a break. What are you taking a break from? He says, well, I'm taking a break from doing nothing. Uh, the reason he can do nothing is because his father wrote a one-hit wonder Christmas song. And uh, he has been living quite well off the royalties ever since, uh, Hugh Grant has. 
he has a, a a really cool apartment right it's very modern he's got all the latest toys um, audio visual equipment uh, espresso makers everything one could want and he has a very nice little life uh, however at one point he gets the bright idea that the way to go is dating single mothers and the reason for this is because he goes out on a date with a single mother who um you know has all the benefits that somebody who's kind of a commitment phobe might be looking for right um you know she uh, wants attention and wants appreciation and offers those in exchange but also she goes home at the end of the night, right? Uh, which is, you know, kind of what makes him happy. But even, um, even Will starts to get bored of this relationship. But luckily for him, in, a, in a, what's to him an interesting turn of events, the woman he's dating breaks up with him instead. And that's a great scene for me, guys. I mean, for me, that reminded me that this Hugh Grant guy can act, right? That scene where he's sitting at the table and she is breaking up with him and his face, he was just about to break up with her and his face is going through all these different emotional shifts. Well, this, and you can see him going from, you know, fear of having to deliver the message to relief, to curiosity, to to planning, right? Uh, as he's going through this, I don't. Any comments on that scene, uh, guys? Before I continue, well, it's interesting hearing his internal monologue. A lot of the film is driven by yes. his internal monologue, and then also partly from Marcus narrating as right. well. But yeah, hear, hearing his monologue in that scene and the juxtaposition between that and his facial expressions and how he's trying yeah. to play it off like he's been wounded, but really this is the best thing that's ever <laughs> happened to him. That's yeah, it was right. a good scene. Yes, and being sympathetic while asking for the check uh, while the girl's not looking, right? So, yeah, a TJ Dog, go ahead. Yeah, his his feigning being hurt but understanding at the same time while we know that he's elated is quite beautiful and a great moment to show what's possible in a film because this is drawn from a novel. So as that's played out in the novel, it's played out through his narration, so we only get his point of view. In a film, we see an actor do this, and just like you described, we see this dance of emotions on his face, and then there's what he's seeing internally, what he's verbally saying, and everything we know of how these things combine, as well as we can see him through the woman's eyes, so knowing that he is pulling it off, but we know he's barely pulling it off. <laughs> right, right, right. So this gives Will the, the bright idea that the great way to meet women is to f focus on single moms. And he says, oh, there must be thousands of them out there just looking for companionship and love and attention. And I'm going to do that. And he says, oh, where can I meet them? And he discovers this group um, called SPAT, uh, Single Parents Alone Together. And he ends up going to one of the meetings and makes up an imaginary child named Ned, who is two years old and two. Who's very eloquent, to, apparently. Who's apparently very eloquent, and and he he surprises people with uh, who actually have children and know that you know children say age appropriate things and, and not uh, otherwise. Um, and so he uh, he eyes one woman there named Susie and goes on a date with her to the park. But they are joined by Marcus, who is the son of one of the other mothers who uh, Will has not met yet. They go off to a park, and um, it turns into a little bit of an interesting day because Will is trying to get rid of Marcus so he can focus on Susie. Marcus brings out a loaf of health bread um, that ultimately becomes a, deck, a duck 
killing uh, uh, device, uh, you know, by accident. And um, when they return home from the park, they find that Fiona, the aforementioned Tony Collette, uh, Marcus's mother, has attempted suicide. And uh, we start to see another side of, uh, of Will because uh, as they are racing behind the ambulance to uh, the hospital, he's talking about how horrible this is, but how cool it is, how fantastic it is to be driving fast behind the ambulance. Now, I haven't touched on this yet, but it's something we're going to touch on as we go. Uh, Will's, one of his characteristics is that he's exceptionally superficial. Right and exceptionally uh, relationship avoidant, and uh, it starts to really show here. Anyway, so uh, this suicide attempt sort of uh, upends even further Marcus's world. Marcus, I haven't said this yet, but he's one of these kids that doesn't really fit in real well. You know, he's kind of a target to bullies at school. He's a little bit strange. He sings to himself without realizing it in the middle of the class and so forth. And um, so he turns his attention, knowing he needs support for his family, he decides that it's going to be Will. And so he starts following Will, realizes he doesn't have uh, a son, that Ned is a fictional character. And so he decides to blackmail Will and says, um, I'll tell you what, I won't tell anybody that you're a lying jerk if you let me hang out with you and watch TV, etc. So they develop a strange but touching relationship where uh, Will starts to see himself as sort of a mentor and cool uncle sort of character to Marcus. There are ups and downs as we go. He gets invited to Christmas at Marcus's house where he is ambushed by Fiona and Susie. They point out what a jerk he is. Um, and then uh, Fiona falls into depression again and Will starts to sort of check out, uh, not wanting the burden of having to be kind of the savior of Marcus and Fiona. In time, there's a rapprochement. Will starts to realize that you really do need people in life in order to be happy. In the meantime, um, Marcus has not only fallen in love with a classmate, a girl, uh, but decided that the way to make his mother happy is to sing Roberta Flack's Killing Me Softly in the school talent show. Um, you know this is not going to go well. It does not go well, but Will steps in and saves him in one of the more touching scenes. I'm just going to say it. I love this scene. It brings me to tears every time uh, when Will steps in and bails out Marcus, and um, they all sort of live happily ever after with the realization that you may be an island, but you're part of an archipelago connected to people under the surface. Okay? Um, so here's, here's my hypothesis regarding Will. Okay? Um, Will... For me, and the reason I picked this movie to talk about is because this movie depicts the preserving subtype of the seven better than anything I've ever seen before, right? Uh, it captures what preserving sevens are really like. Now, not a healthy one, okay? Will is not a, you know, a, a healthy character, right? So, um, you know, I want to be very clear that not all sevens and particularly self-preserving sevens are... Uh, this superficial, and he does show growth, but this is a pitch-perfect depiction, and I'll talk about why I think that. Uh, before we talk about other characters, and the characters I'd like to focus on today, there's four of them. Uh, there is uh, Will, there is uh, Marcus, there is Fiona, Marcus's mother, and I think I'd like to touch on real quickly Ellie, the girl that uh, 
Marcus falls for. Okay, so guys, argue with me about Will. Do you see him as anything other than a preserving seven? And if so, why? No arguments here. I agree. Yeah, preserving seven all the way. Yeah. So, so, so let me say why, and then I'll ask you guys to, to touch on it. Okay. Because the, so preserving is all about preserving things. It's all about preserving resources. You know, I don't call it self-preservation because it's about more than just the self. It is about organizing and structuring our lives and doing it in a way that makes life sustainable. And Will has cut out anything unnecessary, cut out anything that's a distraction, and he chunks his life into units, right, of 30 minutes each. And he talks about how busy he is because, you know, watching a game show is one unit and getting his hair carefully disheveled is three units and exercising at the snooker table is, you know, six units or something. And uh, so he goes on in that vein. Um, And This is somebody who is seeking stimulation. He is avoiding pain by seeking fleeting pleasure and wrestling with, without realizing it, that fleeting pleasure is not the same as joy and happiness. One of the things that is also important to understand about preserving sevens is that they're not the social extroverts party types that is in the literature of the Enneagram. Right? Most preserving sevens I know, and I've known one really, really, really well for 25 years now. Uh, I could, you know, I could, uh, you know, reach out to her pretty easily, right, you know, right now. Um, they're not real social people, and they try to minimize their social activity whenever they can. Right? You would never know it when you meet them. They seem charming and likable and engaging, but they'd much rather not be around people. Yeah, one of the big things that jumped out for me was just the very premise of the fact that he lives on royalties of a Christmas song that his father wrote. In some ways, this is a very clever device to, and I really doubt Nick Hornby knows of the Enneagram. I don't think he had this specific thing in mind, but of like, let's give a preserving seven their dream right away. Let's make that the base condition of their life. He's got a good, steady, ongoing income without having to do anything. Seemingly, it will never run out. It's not dependent on the fluctuations of the market, on things going in and out of fashion. There will always be many, many plays of a Christmas song every Christmas season. Like They establish that. This is one of those songs that is just part of the regular rotation every single year. Uh, An artistic director of a theater that I was working at a number of years ago told me that he gets bombarded with submissions of playwrights who've written Christmas plays every year because And I imagine it's the same thing for Hollywood producers. And I imagine it's the same thing with songwriters. So many people have that idea of if I write this thing and Christmas is the thing where people get all sentimental and they're willing to open their wallets every year. If I write this Christmas play that becomes a classic, that becomes part of the canon, then cha-ching, I just have money coming in every year. I never have to do anything for it. It will just come in in perpetuity for me and my family and my descendants. And that's Will. So congratulations, Will. All of your needs are taken care of. You live in this awesome apartment. You have all the toys that you want. You never have to worry about anything. And it does satisfy, at least on a superficial level, for a while. And it starts to wear thin after a while. And everybody else in Will's life knows that he's kind of living on the surface. He's proud of that. He embraces the fact that he's shallow. He brags about that. So it's like everybody else can see what the problem is with him, and he's pretty defended against it. And that's something that I've seen in less healthy sevens is there's an immaturity and a selfishness. And I really want to specify less healthy sevens. Healthy sevens, very different story. 
but unhealthy sevens are very much just about, I want what's going to make me feel good. And that's really all I care about. And just this belief that if I keep having fun, if I keep having good new toys to play with, then that's all I need. And unfortunately, time passes and you age and these pleasures start to wear thin and you start to look a little ridiculous when you're 38 and you're still trying to live like you're 22. The scene when he discovers that Marcus is being bullied, so he takes him to buy some new shoes and new wardrobe and stuff. He's surprised by his own... He's like starting to connect with Marcus. He's making this connection with another person, caring about somebody else. And he's surprised by it. Like he didn't, he didn't know that he had it in him. Uh, you know, it only, only took him 38 years to figure it out. And, he, and he's confused and he doesn't know what to do with it. <laughs> right, right. He says, oh, so this is what people are talking about when they talk about a natural high. And it only cost me 60 quid. Right, uh, you know the the price of the shoes, uh, and for me it's it's you know TJ you made the distinction there about uh, the healthy versus uh, unhealthy uh, characters, and completely agree with with everything you said there. And what Will is a good example of for me is that sevens don't seem to have the capacity for ill will, right? Meaning that you know he's clearly frustrating and hurting people but not realizing it and not intending it and feeling bad about it, right? Uh, but he's so, you know, just desperate for this next source of pleasure that he doesn't understand or be able to comprehend the pain that he might be causing people secondhand. But there's never this ill will that you see in him or other sevens that I've seen. One of my favorite exchanges is when his ex-girlfriend and her husband ask him to be the godfather of their newborn daughter, and they're thinking that he's going to be very, um, you know, honored by this request. And his response, <laughs> he's quite shocked and says it's, a, you know, kind of a colossally stupid idea. And he says, I couldn't possibly think of a worse godfather for Imogen. You know me, I'll drop her at her christening. I'll forget her birthdays until her 18th, when I'll take her out and get her drunk and possibly, let's face it, you know, try and shag her. I mean, seriously, it's a very, very bad choice. And, and, and Christine says to him, we, we know, I just thought you had hidden depths, to which he responds, no, no, you've always been, had that wrong. I really am this shallow. Right. So he knows, you know, that almost it's I just can't help myself. You know, I, I'm not a bad guy. I just, you know, I'm going to try and shag your daughter when she turns 18, you know, sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Like I am who I am. And that's just it. Yes. Yes. I'm this yes. pleasure seeking guy and take me as I am. Yes. So we see this pursuit of pleasure throughout the whole movie. Um, and we see the, um, the insufficiency of that pursuit of pleasure. And there are a couple of interesting and telling comments along the way. For example, he says uh, at one point to Marcus, if other people can make you happy, that means they can make you unhappy as well. And as much a pursuit of happiness is part of the wiring of the seven, the avoidance of unhappiness is just as critical, right? So it's that uh, desire to not have to face pain. And that means sometimes not only being frustrated with what I have and seeking something else, but avoiding things, not taking risks, not having good, healthy relationships because of that. Thoughts on that? 
At one point he says, I didn't mean anything to anyone, and that guaranteed me a long, depression-free life. Yes. Yeah, brilliant line. Other people can be seen as entanglements. People are at least potential sources of problems. So the less I have of them, the better. And one of the things I mentioned is that he has never had a relationship that lasted longer than two months. So part of that is the novelty-seeking aspect of the less healthy seven. And another part of it is like, eh, if we stay together too long, that's going to lead to emotional ties when, so that when inevitably I have to get rid of her, there's even going to be more screaming and yelling than there is already. So let's just cut this short, which leads to the scene that you mentioned before when he's so elated that this single mom dumps him so he gets to get away with it. Yes. And then the idea that he can fake having a child in order to score with single mothers <laughs> is pretty harebrained when you think about it. Like... <laughs> Clearly, he hasn't thought this through of like... Right. As he's walking into the meeting, he's saying to himself, I'm a single father with a two-year-old. I'm a single father of a two-year-old. Like, that's as far as he thought. He hasn't even gotten the thought fully into his head as he's walking into the meeting. Yes. Not a lot of planning. He just goes for it. But how yes. long can the subterfuge possibly go before the truth comes out if you're in a relationship with somebody? I mean... Is she never going to visit your apartment? Not once. Is she never going to wonder what's happened with the commitment that you have for this child that you're taking care of on your own? But there's another element to the seven that comes in there too, which is how quick thinking sevens are. So in the scene when Marcus inadvertently kills the duck with the loaf of health bread, uh, there's, there's a policeman or some kind of authority figure comes over and will <laughs> immediately just improvises the fact that the duck was already dead. And Marcus was trying to sink the body because it was terrorizing uh, Susie's infant daughter, who's just fine. And then, you know, I, I can imagine that being part of his thought process when he comes up with this idea that he'll fake having a two-year-old, which is just like, I'll figure it out when I get there. Sevens tend to be pretty good improvisers. They think quickly, they think on their feet, and they can pull the answer out of thin air and get the golden fleece until they can't. Yes. The other thing I think here that I'll, I want to make sure we comment on is the the good intention of the um, the seven. I mean, not only the lack of ill will that I mentioned, but genuinely wanting other people to be happy, right? I mean, you can just see this in the Will character. And when he gets to make uh, Marcus feel happy and he you know, he is filled with joy about that, right? And one of the things that you see in sevens is that if if you're happy, I'm happy, right? Uh, and if you're not happy, then you're bringing me down. So I want you to be happy or I want to get away from you, okay? And this is one of the reasons why sevens, you know, flee unpleasant things because it brings down my happiness as well. We see a lot of change. Well, let's see. Do we see a lot of change? We see growth in will throughout the course of this movie. I'm always very cautious about big changes in people over the course of a movie, right? Uh, you know, they often feel, you know, forced and uh, artificial. Uh, but this one worked for me, right? I, 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 at the end of the movie, I still got the sense that Will was who he was, but he had grown up a bit over the course of the movie. Um, reactions to that, guys. Yeah, it's almost like somebody had given him the definition of what a seven wants and then figured out a way to expand it in a way that made sense to him. So at the end, he's still an island. He still has that core philosophy. He's just expanded that belief to, I'm an island that's connected to other islands. And that's yes. okay. You know, he hasn't left behind who he was in every way possible. He hasn't, you know, renounced his materialism. 
He hasn't yes. moved out of his apartment. Uh, but now he has guests over for Christmas and he has connections to others and he seems more at ease with it, but he's still watching yes. Bride of Frankenstein on Christmas. You know, he hasn't relinquished who he is. He's just let other people in. So yeah, it's, it's a moderate growth that's believable and that happens in an expanded period of time because the final scene of the movie happens after a lapse of a good amount of time. So it's not the compacted change that often happens in a movie where someone just changes overnight or in a week. Right. And you still see some of those insecurities there, right? Uh, when uh, Marcus comments on his uh, trainers, you, you can see that insecurity of well, why, what's the matter with them, right? Uh, which is, you know, something that we see in sevens very often. I had this have this friend who is a uh, preserving seven. I don't see him that often, but whenever I do, and he falls for it every time, I'll comment on a piece of clothing that he's wearing, you know, whether it's shoes or a shirt or something. And I'll say, you know, that's a really great shirt. Do they make them for men? And, you know, and he, he just, he, he, and he sucks it up every time when I say it's a really great shirt. And then he's crushed every time when I say, do they make them for men? And we've been going through this for years and he keeps falling for it. So, uh, but anyway, so, so I agree. It was consistent growth with the character. Right? Uh, TJ and Grassi, any thoughts on that? Uh, nothing to add there. I, I did have a question for you guys. What I want to get your thoughts on this. As I watched this portrayal of a preserving seven, I was struck with how in a lot of ways, there's a lot of things that feel five-ish about it. There's a, there's a detachment that he has from other people. And Mario, I remember in one of, I can't remember which module, but in one of the uh, awareness to action certification modules, there was an assignment where we had to watch a typing interview that you did with a woman. And I was convinced this woman was a five. And you later revealed that she is a preserving seven. And I, it se- and on, on the surface, the juxtaposition between five and seven seems so, you know, it's like the polar opposites. You know, part of me is still not convinced this woman's not a five. So talk about how can we differentiate between the preserving seven and the five? I mean, when you get to, you know, when you really dig down deep, you can see the excitement that he's striving for. But tell me about how can we distinguish these two things? Yeah, and see, this is one of the reasons I chose this movie to talk about, because I think that in the Enneagram literature, the two types that are most misrepresented are the seven and the three, okay? And with the seven, they're characterized as these party animals, you know, extroverts, aggressive, you know, people who go after what they want and they're the life of the party and they go from one party to the next, et cetera, et cetera. And these are things taught by people who've never lived with a seven. And I live with a bunch of them. Okay. And I have, you know, more in my family. And what you see in sevens is that they have this public persona, which is the happy, outgoing, expressive person. And then there is the person behind the wall, right? I think uh, either Chazo or Naranjo um, referred to the seven as the charlatan because they have this facade, Right, very three-ish sort of way of this is the public happy face, and then this is the real me at home, and I want to be at home. And usually sevens don't leave the party because they're going to the next one. They leave because they want to go home. Right? They there is this part of them that gets exhausted 
by being the funny, happy, expressive person out in public. And I just want to go recharge. Right? So when you really get to know sevens, you see this whole lot of five going on. Right? And in the preserving seven, you also see a whole lot of one. Right? And if you look at Will's apartment, okay, that's what a preserving seven apartment looks like. I mean, they usually look like a showroom. Right. They're immaculate. They are. You would think this is, you know, Felix Unger's apartment or something from the, you know, the, the famous character from The Odd Couple who was the neat freak. Uh, so sevens are deeply misunderstood. And uh, they when you get to know them, you see that there's a whole lot of detachment happening here. So that's what's behind that, I believe. Another thing I'd add is that sevens are often running from darkness. Yes. That impetus to be the life of the party, to be the funny one, to be the bringer of joy as well as the embodiment of joy is quite often a reaction towards this yes. deep knowledge that I don't like and that I don't want to sit with, but that the world contains a lot of pain and that my past contains a lot of pain and darkness. And that's not a good place to be. That's not fun. That's not exciting. It's also really hard to deny. So I'm going to run. I'm going to run as fast as I can. And I'm going to run from one source of stimulation to the next to get away from that, which, as you said, is exhausting. And yes. sometimes I need to just go home and recharge and maybe be with my darkness when I don't have the responsibility to keep everybody else up. Yes. I can just close myself off in my room and just be with myself and be with these dark and difficult truths that I know are part of my life and part of human experience until they scare me again. And then it's time to go out and stimulate myself again. And whether it's on my own or with people or shopping or travel or you name it, let's do something to get away from that. But it's, it's very much rooted in that, in that essential understanding of darkness, the way, the way an eight's power and forthrightness is in many ways a reaction to their own sensitivity, their own tenderness. That's like, that's not an easy thing to lead with when I go throughout the world. So, you know, my personality is very much a reaction to that. Yes. I'll share an, a, a, an example of this phenomenon with seven. So my wife is a preserving seven, uh, much healthier than, than Will is in, in this movie. If you were to meet my wife, she would seem like the most charming, likable, outgoing person you could ever hope to meet, right? She's delightful and would never allow for an awkward moment in any sort of social situation. She'll take care of people. She'll be friendly. She'll ask people questions. She'll share stories. But she just wants to go home, right? And she just wants to get out of there. And we um, had a neighbor who lived just across the driveway. We kind of had driveways that butt up against each other. He passed away a few years ago. But he was a navigating five. And a delightful guy. And so when I would see him out in the driveway, we would stop and talk and, you know, spend 15 minutes chatting about this or that and then go about our own ways. Whenever my wife had to go out into the driveway for something, she would look out our kitchen window first to make sure that Philip was not out there, right? Not because she disliked him. She didn't, right? She liked him perfectly fine. But she didn't want to get stuck talking to him for 15 minutes, you know, or whatever it was. Now, here's the seven avoiding the five, right? Because I don't want to have to talk to them, right? That's not what the stereotype is, okay? But it's the reality, right, of a navigating five and a preserving seven. So uh, so we have to look behind the, uh, the, the curtain on these things. And again, uh, about a boy is a super example of 
what that really looks like. Okay. Um, let's see. There, there were, I'm trying to think if there were a couple other quotes that I had in my note here I wanted to touch on. Um, uh, yeah, he talked about being uh, cool Uncle Will, king of the kids. Yeah, the neatness that we talked about. The conflicting in navigating, right? So the preserving seven tends to, uh, for the, the navigating or what others call the social domain, is what we call the zone of inner conflict. An awkwardness about understanding how group dynamics works, I think, is really at play in this character as well. Whenever he's with more than just, you know, one or two people, uh, he just kind of falls apart and says something stupid, you know, and knows it, so he tries to avoid it. Okay. All right. So any other thoughts on the Hugh Grant character and Enneagram Type 7, guys? There's a couple of analogs in other movies that this reminded me of. I'd recently rewatched the movie I Love You, Man, and Jason Siegel's character in that I thought is another preserving seven. Oh, and okay. his arc is very similar. And I would also say Seth Rogen's character in Knocked Up mm. in that mm. they're, they're men who have lives that are full of toys and seemingly they have everything they want. And then the arc in both movies is them starting to realize, huh, maybe it's time to grow up. Maybe I don't just want to be a young goofball forever. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one -on -one consulting on creative projects of all kinds as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjingracia.com. Okay, let's talk about Marcus, guys. And I started off with my assessment of um, Will, which I thought was safe. I'm going to, uh, who wants to jump in on what Enneagram type you think Marcus is? My sense of Marcus is that he's a nine and that he then goes to six. So when we first meet him in the first chunk of the movie, he, he seems perfectly fine to go along with his mother's pretty embarrassing control of him. He has perhaps the world's worst haircut, a bowl cut, which I can't imagine anybody was deliberately giving their child in 2002, but he doesn't seem to mind this. He doesn't ever seem to request a different haircut, as well as these horrible sweaters that he's made to wear. He accepts getting bullied at school with kind of a shrug. He gets dumped by a couple of his little geeky friends who are, you know, don't want the attention of the bullies that they're getting specifically because of him. And he's not pleased by this, but he just accepts it. Singing out loud in class seems like an illustration of him getting caught up in this pleasant interior life that he has and kind of losing the boundary between his inner and outer life, which is a very nine thing. And then after his mother's suicide attempt, he becomes very worried. He, he fears further attempts. He becomes pushy and he becomes reactive. So he's, you see a lot of the six, this uncharacteristic anxiety coming in there. And then a big part of his relationship with Will is just them hanging out. And that's something that it mentions specifically in the Wisdom of the Enneagram, how hanging out is a very six thing and how six friends of mine who've studied the Enneagram have confirmed this. It can feel good just to have someone there. You don't even need to be doing anything. And that's the, the scenes between Marcus and Will, at least in the beginning, are just them watching a game show together. 
just them sitting side by side. And they're not like making incredible banter about it. They're not joking. They're not having heartfelt conversations. They're just being there together. And that brings this soothing sense that, hey, maybe I'm okay. And maybe I'm not an awful person. And maybe somebody, at least one person, thinks that I have something worth spending time with me. So that was my sense of Good. it. I like that. TJ and Gracia. Okay, so I'm, this is a great example of how you can see the same character and see different things. So I'm going to yeah. present my, my argument possibly for mm-hmm. Marcus as a type five. And uh-huh. then, uh, Mary, you can, you can mediate between, sure, between sure. the two. Okay, so I would say Marcus has a quiet detachment. He's emotionally detached. He's very deliberate. He's very thoughtful. There's many scenes where there's sort of a socially awkward situation or uh, there's some group dynamics, and he basically just says what's on his mind or he says what he sees and sort of devoid of the, um, I don't know what you call it, social pleasantries or whatever. So... Marcus and Will are over at Rachel's house. They're talking to Rachel. And, well, first, Will gets into sort of an argument with Rachel's son, who is very emotionally distraught that his mother is dating another man. But they all they all end up downstairs together. Marcus just blurts out to Rachel, well, he fancies you. He told me when Will is very much trying to play it cool. And Marcus is just kind of like, well, hey, that's the case. Why would you not say it? The feeling I got is that when that anxiety he's feeling with his mother, he's in class and the teacher is, they're doing a math problem and they're trying to solve for X. And the interior monologue that we hear from Marcus is, he says, I didn't know what X equaled and I didn't know how to help my mom. There's this feeling of inadequacy or uselessness. Like fives often want to be, they want to have a handle on things. They want to be um, useful and they, they want to, you know, they want to have uh, the information they want to be adequate. When Marcus goes back to Will's apartment to confront him after Will has sort of written him off, Will says, I can't help you with anything that means anything. And Marcus says, you could try, though. Will goes in the other room, and Marcus almost immediately realizes that Will is sort of this man-child. <laughs> and and it's it's interesting, this dynamic throughout the whole film, that Marcus really is the most adult of, of all the adults in the, in the of film. all the characters, right? Of all the characters. Yeah. And he says to Will, you don't give a shit about anybody and nobody gives a shit about you. And he just walks out. So I, I see, and I buy the, the nine and six ish thing as well, but it also feels like there's some five or stuff in there. Yeah. So, you know, look, it, it's hard to say, I, I hear what you're saying, TJ, for me, he felt a little too, um, interpersonally engaged, uh, you know, more than I typically see in fives, uh, particularly fives at that age. Uh, so I, I was landing on six until I heard TJ Dawes' argument for nine. And uh, so uh, for me, and I'll just share what I'm compelled uh, by the, the nine-ish argument. Uh, five, I'm not feeling quite as uh, strong about. The reason I saw a six is because this was all about searching for security, right? The kind of the movie was this world being disrupted. Uh, now, is he a nine-ish character who then goes into this, you know, disrupted place and is looking to put it back together? It's a pretty good, you know, argument. Uh, what struck me, uh, some of the characteristics about him be, besides this whole need to create a safety net was um, his doggedness in going after things, right? I mean, when he is doing reconnaissance on 
uh, on Will and discovers that he doesn't have a child, right? I mean, there was just this persistence that we see in Marcus in a number of places that felt very six-ish for me, right? And for me, it, it pointed out, you know, again, one of the misperceptions of sixes is that they're all these kind of fearful, run away from danger sort of characters. And again, that's not my experience of them. So that said, I think a very compelling case for nine, kind of spending a lot of time in six circumstantially. I see a lot of the five stuff you're talking about, TJ and Gracia, you know, uh, it doesn't resonate with me quite as strongly. All right. So I think we can agree that not as clearly cut, certainly, as Will is and some of the other characters that we're going to talk about. But uh, I think I think a good argument could be made for either of any of those three. I surrender. <laughs> but not, not a bad argument, though, TJ. It's a, not, 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 a, not a crazy argument and well-reasoned, so uh, I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm satisfied with the bronze medal on that one. <laughs> he is frequently described as weird, which is an yes. adjective that is far more often applied to a five than any other yes. type, certainly more than a nine. And nines are famous for being invisible. Or just yeah. being the pleasant person that doesn't ruffle any feathers and that nobody goes along with. Much less yeah. likely for a nine to be that weirdo. Yes. And, you know, and even though weird is not something we often associate with sixes as well, what struck me was his courage to get up on that stage to make his mother happy, right? To protect her, to make sure that she did not fall back into this persistence. He is willing. And he even says at one point, I'm willing to sacrifice my life for you, right, uh, or something to that effect. And it's not his literal life, but it's certainly his social life because he's going to get up there with a tambourine in front of all these hostile classmates who already call him Madonna, um, you know, or, or Brittany or whatever it was they were calling him. So, you know, for me, and again, uh, I think Marcus was the most mature and healthy character in the movie. And he showed some characteristics of the mature six, you know, the healthy six, this idea of courage, uh, you know, being the virtue of the six. Um, so an interesting character, you know, again, for me, I'd want to watch him further to see, you know, uh, what Enneagram type he clearly was. But um, I, I really like that. And for me, you know, the movie about a boy, the title about a boy, it's easy to think that it's about Marcus, right? But Marcus isn't really the boy in this movie. You know, it's the Peter Panish seven will who's kind of the boy uh, in, in many ways. So let's talk about Fiona, Marcus's mother. Uh, uh, go ahead, TJ and Grazia. Uh, what, what's your th what are your thoughts on Fiona? Felt pretty four-ish to me. Uh-huh. Any arguments? <laughs> TJ Daw? Felt pretty two-ish with a fair dose of four to me. Oh, really? Two-ish, huh? Okay. Oh, interesting. The whole walking Marcus to school, you know, the and then confirming, you know, their mutual disdain for sheep, very for. But walking him to school, pouring his cereal out for him at age 11 or 12, that seemed very twoish to me. Like, how helpless is this kid that he can't pour his own bowl of cereal? That just seemed like that, that kind of the unhealthy two over enmeshed with her son. And of course, she's... They never actually specify it, but it's implied that her depression is rooted in her divorce. Uh, so she is just plunged into this place of absolute grief. So there's a suicide attempt, or there's just scenes where she's sitting on the couch weeping. 
and with her eyes closed and has no cognizance that Marcus is watching her, which can seem very for, but it's predicated on something. You know, it's, this is not, mind you, we don't see her before this. We don't know who she was before that. But um, anyway, yeah, it seemed very two to me. And same with saying, I love you when he's just walked a, a little bit away from her at the schoolyard loud enough that everybody can hear with no cognizance that this isn't going to help your son at all. This is going to make him radically unpopular, but I'm the source of love. And what could be better than expressing love for my child? So Marcus, I love you. Again, struck me very too. Yeah, there's definitely some codependency there. For sure. Uh, I'm with TJ and Gracia on this one. Um, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, TJ Dahl, certainly some codependency. I would Personally, I would attribute that more to the to the force connection to two, right? Uh, in in some ways of this, you know, uh, I am special because you love me and I love you. Um, I have a hard time thinking of a two wearing a yeti outfit uh, to to, <laughs> to use uh, Will's description. I mean, she certainly. Um, if she was a two, she was dressing like a four for sure, right? I mean, in, in the uh, clothes that she was wearing. Um, for me, it's just, again, not a pure sort of four character or a pure two character. I, I had four in my notes, but, um, you know, and again, it was that, you know, we're not sheep thing that you uh, already mentioned, TJ. Um, you know, it's this uh, real focus on identity as being different. You know, the vegetarianism felt almost like a, you know, uh, an identity issue more than anything else and, uh, you know, so forth. So uh, interesting character. And uh, I, I can see, you know, again, both of those things. And it, it reminds us that there's no pure type, that there are, you know, these connecting lines are significant, right? We see these dynamics in people. I'm always kind of surprised when, uh, you know, on occasion I hear people say they don't see any validity to the connecting points. Uh, I certainly do. Her occupation is music therapist, which is yes. very easy to see for either a four or a two. Yes. It's very easy to see both of those. Like any type could be a music therapist. Yes. Absolutely. But it's it just fits the profile of both of those types quite cleanly to dedicate your life to doing that. Good. So the final character, I think this one was pretty clear cut, is Ellie, the girl in school that uh, Marcus develops a crush on. Uh, any argument for anything other than eight for her? I think she's an eight that dresses like a four. <laughs> <laughs> the dark eye makeup, the leggings. And something they emphasize in the novel is that she's a huge Nirvana fan. The novel takes place very specifically in 1994, and Kurt Cobain's suicide is a plot point in it. Oh, right, right. Of course, none of that made it into the film. But yeah, she's, she's the leader of a, of a gang, basically. Not, not like a, a violent street gang or anything like that, but she's got her crew of students. She's kind of the queen bee of her social circle. Yeah. And when she hears Marcus singing a rap song, Shake Your Ass, she thinks he's talking to her and stops and addresses him very strongly, immediately. Very much like a powerful eight. Yeah, she fills up any room that she's in. Any any scene that she's in, she's you know even if she's in the background, her presence is felt. Yes, yes, and and so it was partly the way she dressed, right? Uh, being a child or not a child, but being a young adult of the eighties, uh, which was you know earlier than this, obviously. But um, you know, I 
can relate to the the clothing choices there uh you know growing up in the punk era um and uh it just i i don't know much about that actress i did a little research on her um after watching the film this time she has been in some other things apparently also some of the harry potter movies you guys might have seen uh i'm not a harry potter guy uh she is also the lead singer and lead accordionist in a band called molotov jukebox um, which, you know, sounds, sounds sort of, uh, you know, who knows, but sounds awfully eightish to me. Um, and, um, and just, there were some things in there. I would be surprised if she is not an eight in real life, just the way that in particular, the thing that stood out to me was when that one kid booed, um, or made the comment to Marcus and Will when they were on stage and just the fury with which she reached up and slapped his head. Uh, I don't think anybody who's not an eight could have faked that or acted that quite so well, um, you know, as an eightish response. So um, I, I thought that was a really good example of a female eight character. Well, yeah, protecting him by slapping the other yes. kid and just sort of general having sort of a big sister. Yes. Protection of, of Marcus once he sort of endears himself to her and she takes him under her wing. Yes. And a very good strategic sense too, because when he asked her to go up on stage, um, you know, to perform with her, her response was, no, that's suicide. Right. So even though she's kind of a queen bee, even she knew that, no, that that's one even I'll never recover from. Right. So it's, uh, you know, again, that, that understanding of power dynamics that is so uh, common with eights uh, was on display there. So, all right. So um, uh, I have a couple of thoughts about the movie uh, before we close up, but on any of these characters, guys, any thoughts uh, that you wanted to share or any general observations? There's a couple that I've got. One was a moment that I thought was just a beautiful illustration of the power of empathy. So Will and Marcus are hanging out and Will finally asks him about how he feels about his mother's attempted suicide and does he think about it? And we hear the voiceover, he says, does it bother me? Every single day. That's why I'm here instead of going home. But what he verbalizes is, yeah, whenever I think about it, he downplays it. And then Will's response is, fucking hell. And that's it. And then later we see Marcus walking on the street and there's voiceover, he says, I don't know why he swore like that, but it made me feel better. Like I wasn't so pathetic for feeling scared. And I just thought that's a beautiful illustration of the power of empathy. Later we find out in Will's voiceover that he's ashamed of how he reacted like that. He thinks that he didn't help or that he made it worse. And there's that often misperception, stereotypically with men, that if there's a problem, got to fix it. And quite often the fix is simply to empathize. And empathy can literally be as simple as saying, fucking hell. Just to acknowledge that what you're going through is really hard. And that can give somebody this dignity as well as this camaraderie and solidarity of like, oh, thank you. Because often we're reluctant to admit that to ourselves because we don't want to seem weak or we don't want to seem needy or we don't want to seem fill in the blank. And then to get that validation from somebody else can make all the difference in the world. There's an even more explicit example of that when he goes to save Marcus and goes to the spat meeting first to um, and runs into and sees Fiona there and she accuses him of wanting to fix it you know and saying oh men always think that you know I just refer you to the guy on Essex Road and everything will be fine and he said yeah I do wish I knew who that person was and you know I don't know what else I can do and she says you're here and that counts a lot right so to your point TJ just being there is often what people need 
um, even though it can be hard, particularly for men, to remember that. Yeah, and it's it's not super on the surface in the film, but it sort of implies a little bit that maybe Will has some unresolved daddy issues. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would say. Uh-huh. Yeah, and right. so you know, there's some allusions to. Uh, there's a scene where Marcus thinks he sees his mom, but it's just sort of he's imagining her calling out to him. And then there's a similar scene where Will has a similar experience with his father, who's not really there. And so that empathetic connection, I think maybe it's implying that Will understands at least at some level what he's going through because there's some there's some daddy issues under the surface that he can relate to. Yeah. And, and we didn't touch on Marcus's father, but maybe we'll come back to that in a second. But there was also the line where uh, Will says something about his father coming up with this one crummy song that made a ton of money and then spent the rest of his life depressed you know, or frustrated because he couldn't top it. And um, so there was, you know, almost you could see Will trying to avoid striving for anything because of how sad that striving but failing seemed. Right? So a real touching moment. And uh, so I just love the scene when they go to Christmas dinner and Marcus's father and his girlfriend, um, oh she, Lindsay, are there and Lindsay's mom, uh, who you know is a delightful character. Um, good. Uh, anything else on this? Uh, T.J. Dahl, did you have something else? Yeah, one other thing is that. Where Will is coming from, I mean, this builds on what we were talking before, is I would say maybe the major myth of Western culture, which is that we are fundamentally individuals. We are individual units. We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're responsible for ourselves, so our accomplishments are because of the awesomeness of us as individuals, about our powerful will, our talent, all of these things. And that kind of translates into this sense that personal responsibility is how we're going to address climate change or COVID safety and things like that. And it denies that we're connected to everybody else. And the overall theme of this movie is one of connectedness, which in terms of the Enneagram, I see as a very sixth theme. This is stated blatantly by Marcus. Two isn't enough. We need backup. And the nuclear family is a pretty recent invention in human civilization. You know, one of the major influences in my life has been the, the writings and the ideas of Dr. Gabor Mate, who co-wrote the book, Hold On To Your Kids with Dr. Gordon Neufeld. And they talk about how humans evolved in extended families and villages and clans. There were always more people to help, whether it's help babysitting or sharing the wisdom. There were other adults for kids to be connected to. And we've largely lost this, at least in the first world. Parents suffer from isolation. Kids suffer from isolation there aren't always two parents, whether it's from divorce or from death. And the more people we're connected to, the more people there are to catch us when we fall. And this isn't a story of Will and Rachel getting together. You know, that's a trope from a lot of movies of this kind, of like that the couple that can't stand each other will eventually get together. And they head that off at the past pretty early in the movie, and it's not paid off at the end. This, the final scene is Christmas at Will's place with however many people there are there, like six 10, something like that. But just this understanding that there are a number of us and that we're connected and that friendship is powerful and that friendship between generations is possible and beneficial and friendship across gender lines is possible and beneficial. And we get the opposite message in so many movies that if a man and a woman have any relationship whatsoever, it's got to be romantic, which I think is actually quite poisonous and destructive because we do need more than just one person. We need many of us 
to catch us when we fall. And I don't know that I can think of another movie that has that same theme. And the fact that that's the theme of a comedy, I think is wonderful. And I'm just delighted that I've seen this movie again to remind myself of that. As John Bon Jovi said, no man is an island. <laughs> so, uh, great, great stuff. Um, again, I'll just say that um, I completely agree with what you said, and that was a point made very nicely in this movie. Um, it also shows the shortcomings of this sense of freedom and entitlement that seems to be so important to so many people today. I get to do what I want, no matter what the, you know is good for the rest of the group. And it's um, this idea that we're all in this together does seem to be something that's lost today. This movie's a great reminder of it. Um, so again, uh, I'm gonna sing it from the mountaintops. I just love this movie. Uh, I highly recommend it for people who have not seen it. Not only because it's a great depiction of um, a particular Enneagram type, probably the best I know of for The Preserving Seven, but just because it's a damn good movie. So uh, go out and watch About a Boy if you haven't seen it. Guys, thanks again. Uh, what's, what's on tap next? What, what do we got coming up, guys? Next up is Bridesmaids, one of my favorite movies from the last 20 years. Very good. Very good. I did see Bridesmaids. I'm looking forward to going and watching it again. So, uh, all right. So, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media. 